Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Dr. Steve Wood. Got a fantastic topic for you today. It's a topic that I had, didn't really know a lot about until recently, until I, I gave a speech in San Francisco and I met these two fine people who are our guests today. Uh, I thought, you know, once I learned from a lot from them as far as additional information that I didn't know on a topic, that topic being the gig economy. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about more about that today, but first thing I want to do is introduce our guests. We got Jackie, Jack Altman. Jackie, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. And then we got Jason. Good night, Jason. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Good. You know, I, and I appreciate having both of you on because, like I said, when when we talked at at the conference, you know, I got a lot of good information on you from you, and I and I, you know, I like I said, I, I wanted to bring you on and talk more about it. But I think I just want to pause here because I don't know how many people really know much about the gig economy, about what what exactly is in the gig economy. So, you know, Jack, can you just talk a little bit about just generally speaking, what is the gig economy? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. It's kind of a term of art that's come about in the last few years that trying to think I, I hadn't even heard of it before that. And it's a lot of different um, technology companies, uh, different groups that do a lot of different things, whether it's transportation, whether it's deliveries, whether it's it's kind of catering to the individual, um, a lot of these more um more personal type companies that allow uh, kind of connect consumers to people who are, who have a service, who have a product. Um, and it encompasses, boy, it encompasses a lot. Honestly. Yeah. I was, I was, I was surprised at how much it was. I mean, Jason, like when you think about it, you think, you know, certain mm -hmm. kind of transportation companies and stuff, but I mean, it's the gig economy is huge, right? I mean, it's, it's not just yeah. a couple. Yeah. One and it's really unusual because it allows everyone to be a part-time worker if they so choose on their own terms. Uh, you don't have to do the be at McDonald's from seven to eight or nine to five, or you can log on and do two or three hours of work and make a little bit extra money for your rent or for a kid's birthday party, et cetera. So it, it does provide a really good uh, benefit, you know, to people who do want to be an independent contractor for these apps. You know, I think I actually, it says you're, a, you know, I, I saw a stat that where basically gig economy generates 204 billion. Uh, and basically the United States predicted to have more gig workers than non-gig workers by 2027. That's pretty wild. Wow. So I want to talk a little bit about more too, you know, like how did you guys kind of get your, you know, just how you got involved, not necessarily with the gig economy, but more or less just kind of, you know, your background in law, how you got into law and, and how you kind of made your way to where you are now. So Jason, we'll start with you on that. Uh, yeah, uh, as usual, no big plan as most 23-year-old uh, guys have. I graduated with a history degree from Arkansas back in 98 and uh, quickly realized there was not a big demand for people with history degrees from a uh, college in Arkansas. So I'll go to law school and three years passed and well, got to do something. Um, so I went to the firm I am now straight out of law school and been there, I guess, 22 years now. And again, it's um, in law school, they teach you how to think about law, but not as much how to practice law and ended up with some really good mentors, Joe Ferris, John Woodard in my firm. And they taught me how to do trucking uh, originally, and that's how I eventually kind of merged from trucking to this sort of work as well. Yeah, but no amazing. great plan. Yeah, what about uh, 
Hey, I mean, we're, it's, we all end up some spot, right? We, we don't, where we start and where we end. How about you, Jack? How did you, what's your kind of your pathway to, to where you're at now? Um, I mean, I think it started, it was very cliche. You know, I was 12 years old watching Law and Order and thought this is what I want to do. And so I want to be a prosecutor. Um, but then when I went to college, I got a chemistry degree. I didn't really think there was any crossover, still planned on going to law school. And when I was in law school, I had wonderful mentors who said, you know, there's actually a whole niche market. There's patent litigation. There are things you can do with your degree. And so I ended up doing patent litigation for a few years. And my husband was in the Navy. So we got transferred around and we both went to Baylor here in Waco. And our plan was to move back. So we came here and I am at a wonderful firm that um, I have amazing mentors who taught me how to go from the realm of patent litigation to trucking litigation and transportation and something I had never done before. And so um, sort of a happy accident as to how I ended up here specifically, but yeah, I've gotten to do a wide variety of things, which has been really, really interesting. Yeah, I guess the question on that, on that, from that patent litigation experience, I mean, obviously we've done a lot, you know, some patent work in, you know, I, I, there's a big difference between patent, how I'm preparing a patent case, how to work up a patent case, how to present a patent case to a jury versus probably how you would, how you would do something in the gig economy or transportation, right? Um, yeah, I do think there is some overlap because some of the gig economy um, litigation issues actually do have to do with certain app-based platforms, some technology. And so I think having some of that background and um, trying to learn how to portray that to jurors who may not necessarily know much about it and speak about it in a in a um, common sense way. So I do think it helped a little bit. But yeah, patent litigation is kind of its own realm of litigation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jason, I think another thing too, you know, you, you talk about some oil and gas and, and transportation. Once again, I mean, uh, transportation, trucking transportation versus other transportations, probably any similarities, overlaps, any differences that you notice as far as just how you, how you would present it? Uh, I think it's more in transportation. Of course, the risks are so high. Uh, every accident is potentially a million dollar accident. And Given the uh, public-facing nature of some of these uh, apps, these uh, gig economy providers, uh, they are targets. And you know, knowing how to prepare a case, like in the trucking world or in the oil and gas world, where it's always a potential seven-figure case, no matter how small it is, uh, it's easy to transition that on to the app space as well, where every, uh, I'm showing my bias as a defense lawyer here, but when people see a big brand name on the accident report. Obviously, in the plaintiff's mind, at least, the case value goes up because there's more money there. Um, and we have to prepare, and Jack does the same thing. This is not a rear-end car wreck where a defendant is insured by the lowest advertising pay-by-the-month insurance company. These are big companies, publicly traded, who have big exposure, uh, and PR exposure as well. So we almost have to treat a simple rear end accident uh, like it would a transportation accident because of the risk. That's interesting. I mean, have you noticed a lot of, you know, you don't need to name names or any of that type of stuff, but I mean, do you, do you see a lot of similar plaintiff attorneys that you see on, on transportation cases, or is there more of a niche that you've seen from, at least from the plaintiff's perspective on these type of people who are dealing more with this kind of gig economy type stuff? I'll, uh, if you land at LAX and go to the uh, rideshare pickup area, you'll see 12 or 15 billboards 
I've I've seen those actually <laughs> on a whatever a Lyft or Uber or whatever the local rideshare company is. The plaintiff bar has figured up that um, there is a large insurance policy and large assets out there. So you're seeing that specialized market um, where the same people who used to be advertising, I was hit by an 18 wheeler. Now where you hit in an Uber. And of course, the next question is a lot of times police reports just list the driver. It's that next interview question where, what were you doing? And then it goes into detail on that. But I, Jack, I'm achieving there well down in Texas, especially Dallas and Houston. Um, the plaintiff bar is going after them. Yeah, Jack, yeah, have you I seen those? We've seen, we've seen a lot of the same overlap. And it's it's exactly what Jason was saying. The the billboards that have the the 18 wheelers, if you were hit by an 18 wheeler, that it's the exact same. Um, firms and they're just kind of transitioning it over to a new company and almost handling those cases the same because as Jason said, they're looking for the cases where they can cash in on the big insurance policies. It's it's not so much about the facts of the accident as much as who else can we pull in for the litigation. That's interesting. I think though when you're talking about there's there's kind of corollaries between certain, you know, plaintiffs firms that will just take it from trucking and then and move it over to the gig economy space. But have you guys noticed in your work as far as any sort of differences and how, like you said, legal precedent or any of that type of stuff? Because I know that it seems as how it's it's more in its infancy as far as that goes. I mean, do you find it more difficult as far as, you know, and, and Jack, you can speak to this because I know some of the information is that are you seeing different legal challenges or legal hurdles that you have to, to you have to go up against that you wouldn't necessarily do maybe in transportation? Um, I do think it's different because I don't think the law is as well settled and I don't think the legislature has caught up with the gig economy in most places. There are some TNC regulations in some states um, and they are varying levels of, you know, just a, a cursory um, legislation that was put out versus ones that have been revised and thought through. Um, but I know in the trucking industry, there's a lot of there are a lot of regulations that we've all become familiar with, a lot of precedent, a lot of case laws for filing certain summary judgment motions um, that we have all become familiar with. Mm -hmm. That is not necessarily true with the gig economy space, partly because of the way that um, people are employed, whether it's an independent contractor, an employer relationship, um, and just kind of how all these regulations work together. And so that is a new space that's still evolving. Yeah, I mean, same thing. Go ahead, Jason. You, have you had anything in your experience oh, that you've seen? Uh, yeah, I'd agree with, with Jack 100% on that. Uh, in trucking, the DOT, FMCSR governed everything. There is a rule for how big your fire extinguisher should be, how big your mud flap should be, how many hours can you drive, how many times can you take a break. And the TNC, the transportation network companies, um, that doesn't exist. A driver can drive as long per day as he feel or he or she feels safe to drive. Uh, the other issue is the background checks. The background checks to be a trucker or a drug test, medical card. You got to go get see a doctor. You have to check your last three employees. And it's all spelled out by federal law. For the TNC companies, again, like Jack said, there is no law on this. Uh, so a lot of times you're seeing the plaintiff bar especially, you know, try to analogize this to a trucking case. Well, you shouldn't drive more than 10 hours a day or you shouldn't drive more than 12 hours a day without a break. And well, if it's good enough for a trucker, shouldn't that be good enough for a transportation network carrier who's picking you up from a bar? Uh, as of right now, the states and feds do not agree with that. 
Um, now, the, of course, people think some people think they should have those same requirements. The other issue is one of the, uh, without getting too much in the weeds, is the employment relationship. Most truck drivers you see are either independent contractors or an employee of the truck company. Um, a lot of the litigation in these um, app and I guess gig economies are attempts by the plaintiff bar to categorize these drivers as employees. I know, Jack, you've seen a lot down in Texas on that issue. You know, simple yeah. things like you were driving for X company. No, I was not driving for X company. There is, without getting too much in the weeds, there are certain things that Jack and I, we really work with the drivers to create that good legal record and the correct legal record. You know, how they are actually categorized by the U.S. Department of Labor rather than a sloppy answer that can be construed. So there is no DOT authority in the app space. Yeah, and I think yeah, because as you said, like the federal regulations cover that for trucking, and so independent contractor employee, you know, you're a statutory employee. We all understand where that's going. That's not clear in the gig economy space. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Like yeah. you said, I didn't even think about it too. Where you know, you you might talk to someone, and you know, you're a driver or something, and like you said, they talk about how they've been driving 10, 12 hours, or how they do it, you know, most of the day. And yeah, I think it's interesting though. Like you said, what what you bring up as far as the differences between between transportation though. And I think I want to, we, we talk a lot on the podcast about, you know, documentation and, you know, what, what, you know, the, the whole idea of having these safety manuals and stuff like that. I mean, is that, a, is that another thing too? That's a difference in the gig economy as far as now you, your, your, your truck driver is in an accident, right? And then the plaintiff counsel comes in and asks to see all the training manuals and the safety handbooks. I mean, do these type of gig economy things have these safety manuals, handbooks, and all those types of things. I mean, I don't want to give away the special sauce. I mean, but you know what I'm saying as far as thinking about the language that's in those type of documents and whether or not opposing counsel is going to be able to use those. Well, I think it's interesting because a lot of those deal with in the trucking industry, it's because you you need to get a commercial driver's license to drive that truck. There's a lot of special requirements. If If anyone off the street were to get into that truck, they wouldn't know exactly how to drive it. They wouldn't know that, you know, when you're making a right turn, how the off tracking of the trailer go. There's a lot of specialized training for a lot of these gig economy. You're doing what you or I would do every day. Sure. You are just saying, hey, I'll provide this service to someone else and get paid to do it. But you and I drive around, we pick up food, we, you know, whatever any of those services are. And all you need is your driver's license or common sense. Yeah. And so in some ways, it's kind of funny to hold somebody to say, oh, you would need a safety manual to drive your car or to deliver food when you wouldn't have to do that outside of that space just as a normal person doing that every day. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is interesting. You know, and I think when we talk about, you know, document documentation and opposing counsel and stuff, obviously, then we get to the preparing of the witnesses for deposition. Jason, I think this is where I'll, I'll let you weigh in a little bit as far as, you know, I think the the corporate representatives, the individuals that are in this gig economy space are probably going to be more between, you know, the thirties, the early forties and that type of stuff. I mean, in your experience, as far as getting attorney or getting witnesses ready for deposition, do you notice a difference of how you have to handle more of this gig economy corporate representative versus the other type of oil and gas? Yeah, um, a couple of issues on it is one is the app economy generates a massive amount of data, just reams and gigabytes of data. 
Um, you know, you've everyone's read the horror stories. My phone's tracking me. You know, I said something and I got an Instagram ad 30 minutes later on that. That happened to me just the other uh, day, by the way. It's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so one of the things we really on before the, even the prep is really working on narrowing the scope of any 30 to 6 or deposition requests and fighting the battles early and keeping the data out of the case. Um, because again, you know, some of these independent operators, they may be driving for three different companies. They could be driving DoorDash, they could be driving Instacart, they could be driving Postmail or whomever uh, because they are free to do that. Um, so we really want to, before we get to that stage, even prepping the, um, the corporate rep is making sure the corporate rep is not going to be talking about too much stuff. You know, not going over reams of data. Well, this driver did X, Y, and Z again, like Jack was saying two weeks ago. Um, the individuals, a lot of these people are new. Uh, these companies did not exist two years ago or three years ago or four years ago. Or if they did, they only existed in San Francisco, New York, Miami. And now all of a sudden they're making deliveries in Pecos, Texas. They're making deliveries in Watonga, Oklahoma, or Bug Scuffle, Arkansas. Uh, companies, state places where, you know, what's going on here? Um, so you've got corporate reps who are new companies. So there's not a big history. It's not where AT&T, which has been around for 100 years, where we know these questions are coming, 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 coming. Second, as Jack said earlier, this, there is no law. Now, the plaintiff bar is trying to create standards, but we're really a lot of times uh, focusing on not giving a reason for uh, to create a standard that does not exist. Uh, for example, wouldn't you agree with me that it's not safe for, quote, your driver, I'm using that in quote because that's obviously a red flag, to be driving 10 hours? You know, we don't want to make those kind of, because it could be safe, because A, what is driving me? Are they sitting in their in the airport parking lot reading a book, waiting for their ride? It's not like a trucker who is, I'm gonna drive from Phoenix to Albuquerque today and be on the road. Um, so really using those corporate reps to be proactive and focus on you know, how this is like Jack said, this is driving a car. This is like me taking you to the airport like I would if you and I were going to a football game versus I'm getting paid for it. Uh, the second issue is uh, these guys, uh, women do move around a lot. Uh, you know, they, you know, these companies start, sometimes they fail, you know, a new venture capital comes in and we're going to move over there. Um, so it is um, important to really get them briefed on, hey, this is the, what we're doing in Oklahoma. They're not going to push hard on the employer employee relationship, whereas California is much more keyed up on are you an employee for wage issues, et cetera? Because uh, one last thing Jack and I want to do is have a case in rural Texas or rural Oklahoma, create bad law that or bad testimony that can be used in California where that could cost the app company a lot more money. That's interesting. I mean, Jack, have you, have you noticed the same type of thing, you know, and getting your corporate reps ready and, and talking to them? as far as getting them prepared for, for depositions. Yeah. And just like Jason said, it's, you're considering different laws in different jurisdictions that may be places you haven't 
you're not as familiar with. I mean, I, I t- am technically licensed in California. I don't really practice there. And to have to understand the employment laws there and how they differ from Texas, because I could have a corporate rep in Texas who gives great testimony for Texas, right? But that deposition can be used against a different corporate rep in California to say, no, 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 you said under oath this about the person who drove for you. And it can create a whole issue that you didn't anticipate. And so understanding how all of these jurisdictions work together, all of these regulations work together and have to have all those considerations um, is is challenging. And it's something you have to keep in mind when, when prepping people that there's not a uniform body of law and we don't want to accidentally uh, create a problem somewhere else or create a reason to create bad law somewhere. Yeah, I think, you know, you talk about challenges and stuff too, you know, go back. I mean, have you noticed that the corporate reps, as I said, more are, are more like 40 somethings who who are probably not necessarily as seasoned as others and kind of in this business, as Jason said, with it being more new and up and coming. So they haven't had a lot of experience with the litigation field. They haven't had a lot of experience just really in general about, you know, life. And so does you find that it makes it more difficult to prep them for deposition? In, in some sense, yes, mostly in terms of the fact that there's usually less experience. We're not dealing with somebody who has been at a company for a decade or so and a company that has an established um, history that we can look back on. So like Jason said, AT&T, even if you have a new corporate rep, uh, we can still look back and we can say, hey, this is the history of AT&T. These are all the things you can learn. A lot of these gig economy companies, these are startups. These are There are still new ones coming on the market, and even the older ones are relatively new. And so even if you have people who have been around for a while, that your company just hasn't been in existence, and most of the corporate reps are relatively young, and there's just not as much information to prepare someone on because it hasn't existed as long. Yeah. You know, and Jason, when you talk about startup and he's talking about corporate representatives and making decisions. I mean, really for you, what are you looking at as far as, you know, if you were to get asked recommendations from your clients or if you had any thoughts as far as what they should be looking at for corporate reps? I mean, is it always the person who who's the most knowledgeable or is it other aspects that you're looking at in order to find your reps? Uh, good question and a tough one to answer. As a preliminary matter, everyone that I've worked with these companies is ridiculously smart. I mean, these these ladies and guys, they're, they are crazy smart. They're all from Stanford and Harvard and have these incredible science backgrounds. And, you know, like I said, I'm just a dumb kid from Arkansas, the history degree. These folks are all a lot smarter than I am. And, you know, what Jack and I really have to do is teach them to communicate and to a juror again, in rural Arkansas or rural Texas or rural Kansas or rural Colorado, um, who can understand the difference between what there is no such thing as a quote Uber driver or a Lyft driver or an Instacart driver that doesn't exist. Now, the planet world want to say words like that. I just picked those three names at random, but it goes for anything because they're not employees. Um, you know, being able to explain, you know, what the company is, especially in the older jury, you know, my mother would never go order groceries. That's what she does for fun. She goes grocery shopping. It fills two hours of her day. Uh, So you had to tell a jury, you know, because juries are normally a bit older, 
hey, what's this button on my phone do? Uh, they really have to explain, in my opinion, what the service does. And two, the benefits of the service. You know, in the transportation sector, Jack and I practice in, you know, we always talk about, well, do you like toilet paper that costs 50 cents a roll or do you want it to cost five bucks a roll? Because if you want it to cost five bucks a roll, we can take trucks off the road. If you want it to cost 50 cents a, road, a roll, you're going to share the road with trucks. And that's a choice the economy and society has made. And the same way with these apps. Do you want, as a jury, uh, every driver to go through a background search and, you know, where and they can only drive for one company and be mod? Or do you want the single mom who wants to be able to pick up another three hours of work and make 75 bucks uh, to pay for a kid's birthday party? Do you want to take that opportunity away from her? Um, so talking about the values that these companies bring to the consumer and the independent app user, I think is an important part because a lot of people just don't get the value these companies do. We all do, we're a little bit younger and we use them. We, we get that it's, if I'm in New York, I can take a ride share company better than I can rent a car. Um, but we're all a little bit younger and the juries skew a little bit older. So that's one thing I'd like my corporate rep to really talk about is that we already benefit to society, both to the independent users and the customers. Interesting. I mean, Jackie, is that kind of your approach too? I mean, I know one of the big things everyone talks about is kind of humanizing the corporation and, you know, humanizing the defendant and stuff. And I think that's goes to, goes to the heart of that, right? What, what Jason was saying. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's explaining the benefit to, especially to a generation that didn't grow up with it. Because to me, I, I see this as so valuable as a mother who has young kids to be able to outsource some of the things that I do to somebody else. A, it provides me the time and B, it provides somebody else income that they may not have been able to do. I have a lot of friends with young kids who, hey, this is a great way that I can pick up things part time and I can supplement my income. That's very good for them. And I think explaining, honestly, kind of from a capitalistic approach of let's let the market do that if that's a service people want. And I think that's relatable. I think the second aspect is also humanizing the company in terms of the company wants this to be successful and wants this to be good. I think a lot of people forget you, you demonize corporations as saying, oh, they're out there just for profit there. But the thing is, a corporation is not going to last in the long term if they're doing things unsafely, if they're not having good practices. And I think having a corporate rep who can really um, talk about that and say, look, there's the reason why we do a certain level of background checks or safety requirements that we have for um, the, the people who pick up some of these jobs make sense because we want our company to provide a good quality, safe service to people. That being said, we're not able to do the level of detail that you would if you were hiring an employee. Um, because then, as Jason said, that that toilet paper is going to cost $10 a roll if we have to go through that. And so it's it's having someone who can explain that in a way that makes sense, um, but shows that the corporation is really trying. It's for the consumer. It's for the jurors. Yeah. And I think another thing, too. Yeah, is go ahead, Jason. Go and Jack's absolutely right. Without getting too much in the weeds, there are safety checks, there are driver background checks. We're not implying that that's not done. 
It's just a different uh, system than the Fed's mandate to the DOT system. Um, again, like Jack was saying, you know, it's really showing the jury there is a balance. Uh, and again, we the companies want to make sure that there's work available or these gigs are available to people. Um, you know, we keep talking about no one wants to be a gig driver if they're going to go through a you know DOT drug test and everyone's a pass free employees or employers are contacted. Um, you know, that defeats the purpose of being a gig economy employee. Right. And that goes back to, like you said, the whole idea of the gig economy, right? It's just for people to be able to pick up things here and there and, and, and pick and choose when they want to work, pick and choose when they don't want to work and that type of stuff versus going through the process of, you know, having to go through the very intensive process of being able to come on or onboarding of, of certain, you know, companies. But I think another thing too, when we talk about gig economy, which we haven't really touched on much really is it's not just necessarily these ride shares that we've, we've, we've kind of talked about, but I mean, there's other things too, right? I mean, the gig economy really is like, you know, if you're talking about Airbnbs or if you're talking about all these other things, that's considered the gig economy, right? You're just picking up freelance jobs. That's the gig economy, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's down to like walking dogs. Um, when, when I lived in San Diego, we had this great company um, and it, it was local, but they've now branched out into national companies. And it's just someone I can pick up my app. I can say, Hey, my dog, I need to have someone come and check on my dog two times a day while I'm at work. They'll just come by. They'll do that. That's an amazing service. That is so helpful to me and something I never would have thought of a few years back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I bought a bookcase last week and there's a little taskrabbit.com will assemble this for me for X dollars instead of me flipping around with the Allen wrenches and banging my knuckles. And after about an hour trying to build it, I got, I considered calling taskrabbit or getting <laughs> in the app to have it done correctly. Um, but yeah, Jack's right. It, it's at the, and the beauty of this and the beauty of it without being federally regulated to the degree that trucking is, is that the consumer and the companies and the gig workers can be creative. You know what? I, I'm a real, I can hang a picture better than anybody else. I can get on TaskRabbit or something else and um, market myself with that. Uh, Etsy's some the same way. You know what? I can, I can make a great candle and I can go through this uh, process. Uh, so what's really done is, you know, the lack of the super strict regulation like in trucking has allowed these companies to flourish and employ, employ is not the right word, um, contract with, with workers, good workers for services they normally couldn't sell. You know, I think the other important thing that, you know, that I think about when you're talking about this kind of creativity and this, the, the ability to have a lot of regulations, but I think it goes back to when we talk as well about it, there's the, that the gig economy has the luxury to learn from the mistakes of other industries, right? As far as making sure that they see what happens as far as nuclear verdicts, they see what happens as far as where they're being, the pain points are, and they can hopefully learn from where those are and kind of preemptively protect themselves, right, Jackie, from from having those type of nuclear verdicts or seeing what what where people are getting in trouble. Yeah, it's definitely something that they can consider. And even though the law is not clear in that space and it's still developing, you can take what has happened in some of the other spaces and say, okay, this is a way that maybe we can preempt those types of regulations because we are going to kind of internally police ourselves this way. And that way, um, the issue that we've noticed in another space won't come up here. 
Yeah. And like I said, I think that's, I mean, Jason, are you, are you seeing the same type of thing? Or are you having those conversations as far as like, Hey, we can get ahead of the curve as far as, you know, getting, getting, getting our defenses up already before anything happens to make sure that we're well prepared for any sort of potential litigation. So I think sometimes yeah. when people are writing up rules and regulations, I think sometimes it's more or less what feels good versus what, what's going to look good or, you know, or what's going to happen when it, when it gets shown to you in trial. Yeah. And without getting too much detail, uh, data is king. Data is powerful. And these gig economy uh, companies have data that no one else has. Um, you know, when I go to Walmart to buy paper towels and toilet paper, Walmart can maybe track my credit card, but they're not getting real time information that Jason just got picked up at this location, which is also maybe a little bit crime ridden. Uh, you know, extra care should be given. You know, do we need to be, there's going to be a concert going on. So we need to, there's a lot of data they have that other folks, other companies wish they had, to be honest with you. Um, and I think the good companies are using that to be proactive. Um, we keep talking transportation because that's what Jack and I do is, uh, you know, if an accident happens, everyone knows within or can know within a very short amount of time because the rider can report it. Uh, it's not a regular accident. Well, the Lowe's guy backed over my sprinkler system and I have to call Lowe's, you know, it's not that delayed. Um, so on bad accidents, a great response, a proactive investigation can be set up within seconds uh, versus we have to wait till the accident report comes in like the old days. Um, so um, I think there is some value in having all the data and the smart companies are using it to get ahead of the game. Yeah, very good. That's 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 kind of what we want, right? That's why we're doing the podcast. That's why I brought you on the podcast anyway, is just to make sure that we can get out ahead of it and kind of use this information so people can learn to to defend themselves and be proactive, you know, prior to litigation. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up though. We'll let you guys go here. I appreciate it. I mean, I'd, I'd like to talk with you all, all day long. I mean, I'll, it was good catching up with you though, from after seeing you at the conference, but close us out, Jackie. Hey, if, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Um, you can go to our website uh, at name and house Smith and Lee. I am in Waco. It should have my email um, phone number. You can get in touch with me that way. Um, and I will answer email or phone call anytime of day. Yeah. LinkedIn, Twitter handles. Are you on any of that social media? Yeah, I am on LinkedIn, not Twitter, but LinkedIn, Facebook. Yep. <laughs> about you, Jason? How, how can anybody get a hold of you? They want to talk uh, to you. But, yeah, about the same. Uh, Friend and Ferris in Tulsa, the TulsaLawyer.com is our, our domain that luckily we bought 25 years ago. Uh, Google Friend and Ferris or hit TulsaLawyer.com. And uh, you can find my email, phone, my assistant, and all kinds of stuff like that. I'm on LinkedIn, but I have no idea what the search is. I think I have Twitter, but again, no idea. <laughs> That's very good. Hey, uh, you're going to make any appearances, guest appearances on Tulsa King at all? You know, I don't think I'm quite still on worthy yet. You know, <laughs> that's the problem. I can't get in that good shape either. These 75 year old guys going to show me up. I know, so, right? That exactly. Kind of embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, this has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences.